Well, good morning. You know, this morning I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans. And this morning we'll be considering chapter 4, verses 9 through 16. Actually, we'll end in verse 17, but that'll just be kind of an appendage as Paul continues his polemic or his war against false means of salvation. In other words, false teaching. Because anything that ends up sending a man to hell is false. And that's what we'll be again considering today. In chapter 1, he showed us the futility of man as he worships the natural order, as he worships the creation, and he robs God of his glory as the creator, and he worships and serves the creature rather than the creator. In essence, worshiping a false God fashioned in his own image. You know, man fashions gods after his own likeness. Look at the, the Greek mythology, which probably, if you read Genesis 6, isn't that mythological, but uh, he always fashions a god in his own image. Man makes God like himself. I think of the Jethro Tull album uh, years and years ago. He said, in the beginning, man created God in his own image. And that's the way man thinks. In chapter 2, we saw the futility of the religious man, the Jew, as he tries to placate God uh, by his own efforts. He gets circumcised, he keeps the law of Moses, he tries to be holy, he seeks to be just, justify himself before God by human effort rather than to be a recipient of divine grace. Because who wants something for free that's worth anything? And salvation is worth everything. And it's offered to us as a free gift. Who can accept that? We need to work for it, right? Then in chapter 3, he showed us how all men stand condemned and naked before the judgment seat of God and that their only hope is, as chapter 3, verse 24 says, is to be justified as a gift by God's grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. Powerful, powerful chapter. Then in chapter 4, he uses the Old Testament scriptures and the life of Abraham, as Pastor Craig showed us last week, to further prove the point that justification before God is by faith alone in what God has done for us in Christ and not what man thinks he can do on his own to earn God's favor, namely keeping the law of Moses and the sign of the circumcision. But you see, Earning our due is symptomatic of all forms of false religion because it's all about man. It's all about man creating a God in his own image. And obviously, if man can be pleased with himself, then obviously God can be pleased with us, right? Because if we worship a small God or a false God, then uh, we can earn his favor because he's so little. He's so worthless. Paul wishes to bury that mode of thinking with an avalanche of truth. And for four chapters, we've been seeing the gospel over and over and over and over and over again. And if this week's sermon sounds like last week's sermon and the sermon before that, then you've got the point. <laughs> You're getting it. You're understanding the gospel. And if there's anything we need to understand in this world... It is the gospel. 
Now, you might be asking yourself, why is Paul making such a huge deal of this? We got the point two chapters ago. Now, to understand why, listen to this excerpt from Thomas Sherman's uh, book called Divine Blessings. I love how he put this. He said, he begins by saying, oh, stand amazed at his free grace. Then he said, oh, precious saint, three questions call for your answer. Number one, what were you? Number two, what are you? Number three, what shall you be? And he's talking to people who've given their life to Christ. Why is the gospel so important? So important that we know it backwards, forwards, upside down, and through and through. He says, what are, were you? Dead in your transgressions and sins. Spiritually dead, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. A rebel to your God, a prodigal to your father, a slave to lust, the devil's captive, on the highway to hell, to eternal separation from the God you deny. That's what you were. Then he asks the second question, what are you now that you're in Christ? And he says, redeemed by Christ, Colossians 1, 13 and 14, redemption through the forgiveness of our sins. Then he says, a royal child of God, the spouse of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, an heir of a priceless eternal inheritance. Romans 8.17 says we're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And what does God own? Everything. The universe. <laughs> and we too have gotten into that inheritance. That's what we are now. We're citizens of heaven. It tells us already. Philippians 3.20. What shall we be? That's the third question. A glorious saint, Revelation 19. Read those last two chapters of Revelation carefully. Chapters 21 and 22. It'll blow your mind if you just meditate on what you are going to be. A companion of angels, a triumphant victor, a crowned king, an attendant to the Lamb, a participant in those soul-ravishing and ineffable excellencies that are God's. You know, Psalm 16.10 tells us, it says, at your right hand, he says, he says, at, what exactly is it? At your right hand is joy and pleasures forevermore. That's our inheritance. He says, you shall behold the king of glory face to face. No man can see God and live, but someday we'll be able to see him face to face. And then he says, and enjoy intimate communion with Jesus Christ. Revelation 21 tells us that God will dwell among us, the Father and the Son, and you will be indwelt by the Spirit forever, it tells us in John 14. Then he says, nay more, you are made one with him, clothed with his excellencies, enthroned with his glories, crowned with his eternity, and filled with his felicity or his love. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for all those who love him. And he says, oh, stand, saint, amazed at his free grace, and render all the glory to God. You see, salvation means everything. I think the older I get, the more I realize that. This world starts fading and fading away, and you get to the point you realize that you can't hang on to it forever. You can hang on to salvation forever. You can hang on to the Lord forever. Uh, 
But salvation means everything, both in this life and the one to come. That's the big deal. That's why Paul is hitting the issue of salvation from every possible angle that he can possibly hit it from. Because if there's anything you want to get right in this world, if there's anything you want to get right in this lifetime, it's this. Don't get this wrong. It'll be the worst mistake you've ever made in all of eternity. Salvation is a free gift. We are justified as a free gift of God's grace through the redemption He has offered us in Jesus Christ. And I, and I hope we never get tired of hearing that. Because that's life. You were dead before. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now you have life. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Him. No man goes to heaven but through Him. You know, in the book of Romans, we'll get into the practical aspects of the Christian life soon, but the gospel of grace is the foundation of everything. That's why Paul keeps hitting it and hitting it and hitting it and hitting it. You know, I've run across so many Christians who I talk to them about the gospel and I ask them, well, what is the gospel? And they can't tell me. They can't delineate it for me. They can't define it for me. And it's like, well, then how can you be a Christian? Then I'll, I'll go through the gospel with them, and they go, oh, yeah, that's what I believe. It should be on our lips. It should be in our mind. It should be the first thing that comes out of our mouth when we have the opportunity. We should know it backwards, forwards, upside down, and so on, because if we get this wrong, we get all of eternity wrong. I don't know if you've dwelt on that fact. If we get the gospel wrong... We get all of eternity wrong, and that's forever. Now, as we consider our... That, that's why Paul keeps going over the gospel over and over and over again until we get it. Now, as we consider our passage for today, I hope you understand the importance of the gospel from what I just said. But as we consider our passage today, Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 16, I want you to see... Three aspects of salvation. First of all, that salvation is not through circumcision or any ritual, verses 9 through 12. Secondly, that salvation is not through law or any other act of human achievement or accomplishment, uh, verses 13 through 15. And then lastly, that salvation is solely through the righteousness of faith, verses 16 and 17. So let's see, first of all, that salvation is not through circumcision, which was a rite for the people of Israel, or any other ritual. Look at verses 9 through 12. He says, Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised? For we say faith was credited to... Notice how many times he uses the word credited as we go through this study. For faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had, or you could say already had, while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And, it's a big and, and the father of the circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who follow in the 
steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Boy, he said a mouthful there. But uh, in this passage, Paul takes asks two very insightful questions. The first is in verse 9. Is this blessing on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? Because if Abraham was justified by faith, it tells us, but still had to receive the mark of the circumcision, Genesis chapter 17, then how does that impact Gentile salvation? How does that impact them? Do they, as the Judaizers taught, have to believe the gospel and be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved in order to become Christians? Do they, in essence, have to become Jews to really become Christians? That's what the Judaizers would follow. Paul would teach a gospel of grace that so you're saved not by works, not by ritual, but you're saved solely by the grace of God. And they would follow up and say, no, 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 that, that, that's good. You've got to believe in Christ. But you've also got to be circumcised. You've also got to keep the law of Moses. You've also got to keep all these 613 Sabbath day rules and laws and so on and so forth. And they brought them back into bondage. That's what the book of Galatians is all about. The sad day when you add anything to salvation takes away the gratitude of living your life for God out of gratitude and love, and it puts you in this position where you're trying to appease him, and you never know whether you've appeased him enough or not. Sad day. So anyway... Is the blessing of justification by faith and salvation apart from the works of the law and circumcision for all mankind, Jew and Gentile alike? Well, Pastor Craig hit that last week in verses 5 through 8. Let's read those again. He says, But the one who does work does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Who's that? God, Christ. His faith is credited, notice again, credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the man who God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Again, that accounting term. You're credited with righteousness and Christ's righteousness is put on your account. Your sin is put on his account. We'll talk about that in a moment. But Who's that for? Well, it's for those who are circumcised and uncircumcised. Anybody who believes by faith. You see, it's not that works and ritual are not important because even as those who are saved by grace, we preach holy living according to God's word, don't we? We preach doing good works. There's nothing wrong with good works. Uh, John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You know, the Christian life isn't, oh, I've got God's grace and I can live any old way I want. That's not the deal. The deal is you've got God's grace and because out of gratitude, I live my life in a holy manner for him according to his word. So don't ever discount that. You know, Paul will deal with this in Romans chapter 6, shall we sin that grace may abound? He says, may it never be. 
You know, sin does not increase grace. It, it uh, in fact, throws our sin in the face of grace. So we have confession. We have getting it right with God. We have repentance. We turn to Him and walk in a manner holy by the power of the Holy Spirit. But anyway, that's a whole other sermon. You know, and, and we practice ritual, don't we? We have baptism. We have communion. But those don't save you, do they? We have baptism and communion. But the point is, neither works nor rituals save us. They merely point us to a greater reality that salvation is by the grace of God through the righteousness that is credited to us in Jesus Christ. I love one of my favorite verses in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made Him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And it's almost an accounting verse where our sin was credited to Christ's perfect account. His perfect account was credited and wiped away our sin by the blood of Christ which was shed for us and by the power of the resurrection as He conquered sin and death on our behalf. And we're credited with His righteousness. He is credited with our sin because He's the only one who could bear it, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All I ask you to do is believe. So the point is, is that the reality is that salvation is by the grace of God through the righteousness that is credited to us in Christ Jesus. Theologians would call that the doctrine of imputation. And I would encourage you, if you want to do something online, look up the doctrine of imputation and get it down and understand it because it is the most, one of the most awesome doctrines there is. Righteousness solely comes from God on the basis of faith. Let me, let me read you, if you can turn there if you want, but turn to Titus chapter 3 and verses 5 through 7, and it couldn't be any more, any more explained any better. He says he saved us. Great statement, isn't it? He saved us. Who saved us? Christ saved us. How? Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, not according to our righteous deeds, not according to all the good things we've done, and, and you know, we can name all three of them. And uh, he says, but according to his, what? Mercy. That's God giving you what you don't deserve, I think. We deserve hell. He gives us mercy. He gives us grace. He gives us salvation. He gives us eternal life, and we deserve none of it. But it's according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration. That's bringing the dead to life. And the renewing by the Holy Spirit. That's our daily uh, walk with Christ as He renews our minds and our hearts on a daily basis according to the Word of God, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so being justified how? By His grace. Not by your works, not by ritual, not by baptism, not by communion, not by coming to church, although that is, they're all important. I'm not downgrading any of those, but they do not save you. He says, justified by His grace, 
we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I love that. How are we saved? By God's mercy and grace, period. Now go back to Romans chapter 4 and verse 10 where Paul asks another insightful question. He says, how then was the blessing of justification by faith credited to our account? How did this incredible blessing of forgiveness come through Abraham? Well, he was circumcised or uncircumcised. Now listen closely to Paul's answer once again in verses 10 through 12. He says, how then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of the circumcision, the seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he already had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them and the father of circumcision. To those, he says, who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of Father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. The logic there is just profound. And to anyone who knows the Old Testament Scripture, it's irrefutable. You know, God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans in Genesis chapter 12. And at the time, he is just a pagan, idolatrous Gentile. That's all he is. God appears to him and tells him what he's going to do in his life. He, God tells him he'll make a great, great man out of him. He'll make a great nation out of him. That he'll uh, bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. And he'll bring him to a land of his own. And, and in him, all the families of the earth will be blessed, referring to Messiah. Now, this guy's a pagan, idolatrous Gentile whom God bestows his mercy and grace upon. Then God reiterates those promises in Genesis 15, and Abraham believes God, and God credits his, his faith to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Not Abraham's faith, but God's promise. Okay? Keep that in mind. Now, in Genesis 17, when Abraham is 99 years old, as good as dead, so to speak, uh, at least physically and sexually, and same with Sarah, she was 90 at the time, uh, 25 years after his original calling in Genesis Chapter 12, God renews the everlasting Abrahamic covenant and seals it with the sign of the circumcision, which was the seal that pointed to the fact that Abraham already believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The circumcision wasn't the sign of righteousness. It was a sign that Abraham had already received the righteousness of God by grace and faith. Now, in Genesis 17... It's 25 years after Genesis chapter 12. It's many years after Genesis chapter 15. Abraham is uncircumcised. He had not re received that seal. But the point is, Abraham had already been 
declared righteous by God years earlier by faith, not by ritual. And although the ritual was the sign of the covenant, it was not the substance of the covenant. Abraham's faith in God's promise was the substance of the covenant. Paul says in verse 11, it was a seal of the righteousness of faith which he had while uncircumcised. The reason being that he would be the father of all who believe in God by faith, both Jew and Gentile, both circumcised and uncircumcised. So all of a sudden, you get an expansive view of who Abraham really was. He was the father of us all. Because all of us are saved by faith. All of us are saved by God's mercy and grace. And Abraham was the prototype of all that. That's why Abraham is used as the example. He's, he's just, he's the prototype. He's the one whom our faith emulates as he believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he makes the point very, very obvious that ritual does not save us. Again, in verse 12, let's read that. He says, he says, the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, okay, these people are circumcised, but he says, but who follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham. So if you're a Jew and you really want to follow in the steps of Abraham, not just be a descendant of Abraham, but if you want to follow in the steps of Abraham, you emulate his faith in God. Not faith in circumcision, not faith in the covenant, not faith in any of those things, but you emulate the righteousness of faith that was Abraham's life. That's what characterized his life, and he had that while uncircumcised and while circumcised. I hope I'm making sense here. So he makes that point very pointedly in verse 12. Uh, now, many a Jew believed otherwise. In the book of Moses, uh, extra biblical rabbinic writings, Rabbi Menachem wrote, uh, Our rabbis have said that no circumcised man will ever see hell. In other words, they'll all be saved just because they're circumcised. And then he said in the book of Akita, Jizahak, I don't know if I pronounced that right, thought that uh, Abraham sits before the gates of hell and does not allow that any circumcised Israelite should enter there. I didn't know that was Abraham's job. I thought he was rejoicing before the throne of God, but um, that was their take on it. That belief was so strong in that early church that they held the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 and concluded, among other things, that keeping the Mosaic law and circumcision were not necessary for Gentile salvation. They had to have a church powwow in order to take care of that problem. Because as I said, these Judaizers would follow up Paul. Paul would preach a gospel of grace, and these guys would follow him up and say, no, 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 that grace is good, but... You've got to add this to grace and that to grace and everything else to grace, which nullifies grace. That's the problem, is add anything to grace and it's no longer grace, it's grace plus human achievement, human accomplishment. So they hold a powwow, and among other things, they said you don't need to be, keep, Gentiles don't need to keep the law of Moses and they don't need to be circumcised. So you see, ritual does not save us, Christ does. You know, you may be here this morning and you're listening to this and you're going, man, I don't know what I really believe. You know, I was baptized when I was a baby and, and uh, you know, I take communion. And, but, 
I don't know if I'm going to heaven. I don't know if I really believe in this grace stuff because we all, we all have this tendency. We want to, you know, you don't get any achievement by not working for it. And, and here the Bible tells us you're saved by grace, by God's mercy. That's hard to accept, especially when you look at your life and you go, oh, my goodness, am I a wretch? You know, that's John Newton who... Uh, boated about 20,000 slaves and had them on his mind and heart and when he wrote Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me. That's the greatest conclusion you can come to in your life. There is nothing good in you that you have to offer to God. But the beauty of it is, is once you recognize that, that God's grace is freely given. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, Romans 6.23. And what a beautiful thing. You know, God did it all on my behalf. And now, you know, I live a pretty good life, you know, pretty righteous life. You know, I'm not bragging or anything, but I don't do it because I'm trying to earn God's favor. I do it because I already have it, and I'm overwhelmed with gratitude. You know, when you really know the gospel, it's even hard to think about it without, you know, coming to tears or just feeling so unworthy, so wretched. And yet, God loved us even while we were at sinners, Christ died for us. You know, that's, that's the point. He didn't say, you know, get a little better and do this and do that and, and uh, do this ritual and that ritual and, uh, you know, make sure you have a perfect little star from going to Sunday school and, and this and that, uh, and then I'll think about it. Even while we're enemies, Christ, and we'll see that in Romans chapter 5. Anyway, I hope you're not, any of you here are not trusting in some kind of ritual that you think may save you, like communion, like baptism, because it doesn't. The substance is Christ. The substance is the righteousness that comes through faith in the person of Christ and what he's already done for you, not what you can do for him. And if you understand that, you'll do a lot for him. (laughs) Believe me, if you really understand that, you'll do tons for him but it won't be to earn his favor. It's because you already have it. Let's keep that in mind. Now, secondly, it's not through the law or any other form of human achievement. Look at verses 13 through 15. It says, For the promise of Abraham or his descendants that he would be heir of the world. Think about that, heir of the world. Wow. In the millennium, the Jews... Jesus will reign from Jerusalem, right, through Israel. That's why, you know, the devil makes such a, a to-do about Israel in this life. He'd just like to get rid of them, and he's tried to exterminate them many times, but they just won't go away. You know why? Because God's promise is that they will reign, that through Abraham they will be the heir of the world, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. 
For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. Interesting statements. Now again, we see Paul's profound logic. When Abraham was told he would be heir of the world, that in him all the nations or families of the earth would be blessed, that he would be the father of a multitude of nations, that Canaan would be an everlasting possession for the Jewish people. It was not through the law because the law wasn't even given for some 400 more years. It makes too much sense, but we try to make legends out of dead people. And so Abraham got exalted as being, as Craig was explaining last week, as the icon of the one who kept the law. Well, the law wasn't even given to be kept. Abraham didn't keep the law of Moses because there was no law of Moses to be kept. But he did have the righteousness of God by believing God and putting his faith in God's promises. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's the whole point. Four times it tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham followed God by faith, not by laws, we read earlier. You know, five times in Romans chapter 4, it tells us that Abraham was credited with righteousness, or those who follow him were credited with righteousness. Now again, like the sign of the circumcision, the law is good, Romans 7.14, but it doesn't save us. Nothing wrong with the law. We, the, if, if America didn't have the rule of law, it'd be even worse off than it is. Right? We see that in many countries where the rule of law breaks down. Spiritually, the rule of law reigns in a sense that God has given us his word to live by. We don't discount the law. We don't say, oh, it's horrible. I just live by grace now and do whatever I want. That's not the way it works. We live by grace and out of gratitude, we pattern our lives after what God has said in his word. So... That's, that's the point. Now again, like the sign of the circumcision, the law is good, as I said. And Paul brings, and it doesn't save us, and Paul again brings that out very strongly in verses 14 and 15. Let me read them again. It says, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. For the law, because I hope you understand that verse. I, I'm not sure I quite understand all of it, but uh, if it's according to law, then it's according to human achievement. I don't have to believe the promises of God. I can do it on my own, right? I can keep the law and somehow please God and get what I want from God because I'm so righteous. I think that's kind of the essence of the verse. But he says uh, the promise is nullified because of that, because now it's about human achievement, not about believing what God has said. And then he says, uh, for the law brings about wrath, the wrath of God. But where there is no law, then there is no violation. <clears throat> Paul tells us law or human achievement the mere fact men deceive themselves thinking they can earn God's favor somehow and earn his salvation 
voids faith. It nullifies faith. It, it negates belief. It destroys grace. Grace is no longer grace. And the worst thing is it robs God of his glory. When I say I'm good enough to be in God's presence. And God says no one can even look upon me and live. And you're, you know, you're saying you're good enough to uh, earn his favor and, and be in his presence. And you know, when the doors of heaven, they'll be trumpeting and you'll waltz in like you're some knight in shining armor. That's not the way it works. We rob God of his glory when we think we can do it on our own. And don't depend on him by faith. Furthermore, the law condemns. It brings on the wrath of God because of our incredible inability to keep it. Although we can deceive ourselves into thinking we're doing pretty good. But when was the last time you told a lie? How many times you got to be a lie to lie to be a liar? When did you? When was the last time you had an adulterous thought? When was the last time you got angry with somebody without cause? When was the last time you badmouthed the government? <laughs> if you want to laugh, um, you know it's all sin. You've broken the law. James says to be guilty at one point of the law, you're guilty of it all. All you got to do is break one of them. You know, Paul said, as to the law, Philippians three found blameless, and then in Romans seven he'll said, if it wasn't for coveting, I wouldn't have known what sin was. That's how righteous. The guy lived according to the law, but he broke the law. He was covetous of what other people were getting and the accolades they were getting, and he wasn't getting them, possibly. Or he wanted more accolades than he deserved, since we don't deserve anything. But uh, think about that. Just one law. You break it. You're a lawbreaker. Just speed one time going down to Fresno. Go over 55 on the, you know, when you're not going through course gold, <laughs> Kevin. But anyway, the law condemns. It brings on the wrath of God because of our inability to keep it. The law is a burden no man can bear. And at best, it simply points out, in no uncertain terms, our need for a Savior and the righteousness of God, which comes on the basis of faith in Christ. You know, Galatians 4 says the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. The tutor says, no, you're, you're this, doing exactly what I'm doing this morning. You're wrong here, you're wrong there, you've sinned there, you've sinned there. And, but Christ, by grace, by mercy, has forgiven that. And that's mind-boggling if you really understand who you are, because that's what the law, the law in your face just condemns you. It's like, oh, goodness, I'm, I am a wretch. I'm a miserable, pagan wretch. That's, what, that's why I came to Christ. I, I just looked at my life and I thought, you know, you're enjoying everything this world has to offer, but, man, you are a wretch. You're using people. You're doing stupid things. You're you're riding high on the hog, but, uh, you know, when's the hog going to die? But, uh, you know, here we are because we came to that point where we actually saw our life and our need for a Savior. We're not doing that good, and that's the law's work. But, you know, the beautiful thing is, I'm going to read you a little section of Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, and I, I love this because in 
5.17 of Matthew, he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to negate the word of God. That's what Jesus says. I did not come to abolish, but what? To fulfill. And that's what he's done on our behalf. He's fulfilled the law. He's fulfilled the word of God on our behalf. What we could never do, he did. And it says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from this law until all is accomplished. You know, God being perfect and his word and his law being perfect, it had to be fulfilled by somebody. And that somebody had to be his son so it could be an infinite redemption given to a sinful people. And he says, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others also shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are scathing words. Those are horrible, terrifying words. Because who was more righteous than the, at least in man's eyes, than the scribes and the Pharisees? They meticulously kept God's word. They even invented their own words. They came up with 613 Sabbath day rules and, and regulations, and they tried to meticulously keep those, and they tried to bag on everybody who didn't. Now, that's righteousness according to man. And Jesus said, unless your righteousness is greater than that, well, how could it be greater than that? Well, the righteousness of faith. And that's what he's talking about in this passage. You see, Christ fulfilled the law for us. What we could never do, he did on our behalf perfectly forever. And though the law of the Lord is good and wonderful and awesome, Psalms 19, because of Christ's finished work on the cross, it no longer condemns those who believe in the Savior. There is no longer violation and eternal judgment because Christ has fulfilled the law on our behalf. That's, I think, the essence of what we just saw in verses 14 and 15 of Romans chapter 4. So, we see that salvation is not through ritual, it's not through law, but lastly, it's only through the righteousness of faith that comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at uh, verse 16. Verse 16. He says, for this reason, for everything I've said up to this point, for this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Great words. It's by faith that it may be in accordance with grace. And then he says, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, the Jew, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, the Gentile, who is the father of us all. For it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. Not just the nation of Israel, but all the nations, well, all the people in the nations that would believe by faith. That's Abraham, our father. Now, verse 16 is the focal point of this whole passage. God reckons the believer's faith as righteousness 
in order that salvation might be in accordance with grace. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Faith is not of ourselves, even that it's a gift of God. Faith is not just another human work or point of pride. A man can take pride in saying, oh, I had enough faith to believe. I did this, I did that, and I'm smarter than everybody else, so I believed in Jesus. No, he said that faith was given to you by God. It's not of yourselves. Neither is the salvation that it brings. The power of salvation or justification is in God's grace, not in man's faith. I have no one to thank but God for both my faith and my righteousness and my salvation before God. Nobody to thank except God. Therefore, God receives all the glory, doesn't he? Abraham's faith was not in itself righteousness, but it was reckoned to him as righteousness by a sovereign, gracious God who provided the righteousness no person can attain on their own. That's why the promise of eternal life can be guaranteed to all, because it's by faith and not by works. Because whoever knows when they've worked enough, whoever knows when they've done enough or kept enough rituals or done enough works, how do you, how do you ever know? But we all know when we exercise faith in the true God. We believe His Word, we put our faith in the promises of His Word, and we understand that He is alive and active in our work, our work and our lives through the Holy Spirit. Salvation is guaranteed to those who believe by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, whether they are of the law, the Jews, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, the Gentiles, because remember, Abraham believed while he was a pagan, idolatrous Chaldean. It would only be later he would be the, the father of the Jews. Therefore, he's the spiritual father of us all, both believing Jew and Gentile alike, of all who put their faith in Christ and his finished work of salvation. God himself is the guarantee of your salvation. You're not. You know, somehow I think, I, 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 you know, I think of this myself. I know I'm saved, but, uh, you know, I think sometimes I'm keeping myself saved. Or, or God's more pleased with me because I'm living this way or that way. And the fact is, God couldn't love me any more tomorrow than he loves me right now. And that blows my mind. That makes me want to live my life for him. Not just be a legalist and check off the boxes and say, well, yeah, I'm making it now. And uh, two days later, not making it and feeling like I've lost it, you know, grieving the Holy Spirit. But uh, just remember, God is the guarantee of our salvation, not what we can do. It's all of grace. In essence, Paul is telling us that Abraham is the prototype of every genuine believer. He was a pagan, idolatrous, ungodly sinner like all of us, both Jew and Gentile, who trusted not in his own efforts to earn God's favor, but in God's gracious promise. And he kept believing. He grew strong in faith, we'll see in, in the book of Romans. Abraham believed God. It was reckoned or credited to him as righteousness, Sweeter words of salvation were never spoken to the believing heart. And that's what stimulates a life of holy living, holy gratitude. That's it. You want to 
live a life better than you're living now for Christ, then really understand the gospel. Really understand grace and mercy. And it will do amazing things to our hearts. Then Paul ends the section with his usual appeal to Scripture. Verse 17, as it is written, the Father of many nations have I made you. Truly, as both Scripture and the Apostle Paul explains, it's Abraham is the father of all who believe by faith. Let me just end by saying, O sinner, stand amazed at his grace. It will work wonders in your life. If you're having a problem living for him, understand grace more. Understand mercy more. Understand what Christ has done on your behalf more. And it will have a tremendous impact on your heart. Because it's not about our achievement. It's not about what we're doing for God. But it's what God has done for us. And let it just permeate your heart and your mind. Let's pray.